know, I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is. From the political science department at UW-Madison. Am I exasperated? Absolutely, I'm exasperated. I'm Adam Wigger. This country's gone through tough times before, and we're going to do it again. And I'm Sam Beisman. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. And this is 1050 Basketball. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are excited to collaborate with the La Follette School of Public Affairs to interview Dr. Menchi Chin, Professor of Public Affairs and Economics. His research examines the empirical and policy aspects of macroeconomic interactions between countries. Professor Chin is a co-author with Jeffrey Frieden of the recent book Lost Decades, The Making of America's Debt Crisis and the Long Recovery. And he has also been a visiting scholar at the International Monetary Fund, the Congressional Budget Office, the Federal Reserve Board, the European Central Bank, and the Banque du Francais. Additionally, Professor Chin is the co-author of Econ Browser, a web blog devoted to current macroeconomic issues. Today, we hope to talk to Professor Chin about how COVID-19 has impacted the U.S. economy as well as international finance and global trade and what a post-COVID future might hold. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Chen. Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Since this is your first time on the podcast, can you tell us a little bit about uh, your professional and your teaching career and your research interests, just kind of what led you to where you are today in the La Follow School? Okay, well, it's uh, it's been a long path given how many years I've been now from graduate school, but uh, I guess the, the thing is way back in maybe it was high school, I was uh, really interested in history and sort of politics in general, but looking for a framework to analyze the, the world, sort of systematic framework. And somewhere in there in, in high school, I learned about economics and economics seemed to be a great way to systematically assess what was going on in the world. So many things became clear through the prism of economics that became my new sort of love. So I majored in economics in in college and then decided to go on into um, graduate studies. So just to give you a background, I did my uh, undergraduate at at Harvard, uh, focusing on international economics. And then at that point, I really wasn't sure how to proceed in terms of my studies. And I took a year off to work at the Brookings Institution, which is a think tank. And that gave me a a taste of, of what it looks like to work in the the policy world. And so I went into graduate school, perhaps with a slightly different perspective than other people do, which is to think about the policy implications more so than maybe the the theories in and of themselves. Because in graduate school, there's a tendency for people to be sort of pushed or nudged along into thinking about, you know, what's the new great theory that you're going to develop or the new great empirical finding. So I did my graduate work at UC Berkeley uh, out West and after working at Brookings for a year. And um, after that, I guess the rest is kind of history. I went into a sort of straight line economics department at University of California, Santa Cruz, just down the, the coast a little bit from Berkeley. And that was an economics department, but had a great policy interest and also international economics focus. 
And so with that, you know, I can started in on sort of a professional career, but once again, with a particular focus, which I got the opportunity to exercise a little bit, spending a year at the uh, White House Council of Economic Advisors on staff. And after that, you know, moved on to La Follette School here in Madison. That was a change because that's clearly a place with a policy emphasis. And that's actually been great to the extent that you get to see a much wider, diverse perspective on all sorts of policy issues. And and it's been a great place for me since then. So it's been a great career in the sense that I'm allowed to think about those policy issues that come up and to talk about them and be paid to do so. Well, speaking about thinking about and talking about policy issues that come up, we'd like to now get into some domestic economic policy issues, namely with respect to how COVID-19 has really kind of upturned the domestic economy. And we know that you've been getting into a little bit of policy analysis regarding the impact of the Coronavirus Relief and Economic Security Act, perhaps better known as the CARES Act, which was passed in late March of last year. So we'd like to ask you first just a pretty broad question about this piece of legislation. What has been the impact of that 2020 stimulus package on the domestic economy, specific and more specifically, how have, say, the stimulus checks or pieces of unemployment insurance or other anti-poverty measures affected the domestic economy? Okay, well, uh, that's an excellent question, and I, I don't know if anybody can give a, a completely proper and comprehensive um, answer to it, but let's take a stab at it. And I'll put all together the sort of packages that were passed both in March, the one you referred to, the CARES Act, as well as the other packages that preceded it, which were smaller and afterwards as late as December. You know, that's roughly $4 trillion worth of support that's been injected into an economy that's around $21.5 trillion. So it's a sizable amount of stimulus or support that's been injected in a very short amount of time. And I think that to a great degree is testimony to the fact that um, for whatever reasons, the sort of constellation uh, configuration of political forces arrayed to make that happen, we have been able to implement an amazingly large package in response to an amazingly large negative shock to the economy. That's the first thing. And so in some sense, we've done better than other countries in terms of our economic response. The composition is also pretty interesting and in many ways makes it much less a stimulus package than a sort of support package in the following way. If we were in a typical recession, what would happen is that uh, aggregate demand would decline as you know either consumers were unable to spend or they didn't want to spend as their incomes fell or as investment declined. But in the case of uh, the, the COVID recession, what happened is we essentially closed down parts of the economy for public health reasons and or people um, stopped undertaking activities because they were averse to the possibility of getting sick naturally. And so it's not a recession in the typical sense in terms of the origins. And so the typical measures you want to undertake um, to offset the impact of the recession are different. So you could stimulate the economy, but some parts of the economy are just not, you, you can't stimulate them, you know, like restaurants. No matter how much you stimulate people's incomes, increase their disposable income, they're still not going to go to the restaurants that involve high uh, contact and hence high probability of getting sick. And so what are the things that you might want to do? Well, you would want to keep businesses and employees afloat. 
until such time as you've dealt with the public health crisis. And then for the rest of the economy that's not affected, let's say like manufacturing and mining and so forth, for them, it's true. You want to keep demand up somehow. And so there is part of it that's stimulus, but it's important to recognize there's a part of the economy that's not amenable to stimulus. It's amenable to just life support. And the intent then is, well, you want to mitigate um, harm to people, excess suffering and so forth for the people who just, you know, the restaurant workers who just don't have employment. And at the same time, you want to make sure that the firms don't go out of business before the pandemic's over. And you don't want people to drop out of the labor force before the pandemic's over. And so the, the array of policies that were implemented are you know, different in a way than what you would typically do. So CARES Act had this PPP, Paycheck Protection Program, where you're essentially, they were loans, but essentially turned out to be grants to keep firms essentially afloat as long as they keep a minimum number of employees being paid. All right, well, that's not stimulus in the typical sense, although it has stimulative effects. And then you have these rebate checks, just just checks cut out to certain households to give them income. That is stimulative, but really the intent is to keep households afloat. So $4 trillion in total of a whole bunch of things put together, of which those are two sort of significant components, that is a life support package for an economy that has been put in induced coma temporarily. And you can't completely come out of it until you have a vaccine and, and herd immunity largely achieved. So in that success, in that perspective, these packages were pretty successful, more successful than what occurred in many other countries. You know, there's kind of irony. The economy is doing better, but in terms of uh, fatalities and illnesses, we, we did worse. So on the public health front, we might not have done as well as other places. But in terms of the economic response, it's been pretty good so far. Well, all that momentum sort of petered out after the uh, in the run up to the election. There was no package passed over the summer, and then there was only a, a close to one trillion package passed after the election. And so, what was true is by the end of the year, all that support was running out, and you could see the economy sort of slowing down. So, short answer to your question is CARES Act was pretty successful in supporting the economy, probably could have been better designed and directed in certain aspects. But given how fast it occurred, and it was rapidly implemented, it's amazing that we got it into play. So a success on on fiscal policy in 2020. I think that's a very comprehensive take on the whole thing. And it really kind of helps me organize and think about how the economy was behaving over a large stretch of last year post-pandemic. So thank you for that analysis. But now more specifically, I want to hone in on Wisconsin in particular and ask how the CARES Act impacted our state in particular. Well, I, I think it's hard to differentiate and say that you know our state has a differential impact than, let's say, other states. I mean, the, the impact from the pandemic is different than, let's say, New York, partly because, you know, we didn't have, we weren't hit early and we didn't have a major urban center that was then subject to such a high incidence of the disease. Then you think about the the package and the support and, you know, all that support helped out. I mean, it, it helped to the extent that you kept restaurants in, in business, even if they weren't operating, that they otherwise wouldn't have. The one thing I'll say is that Wisconsin's a little bit more manufacturing heavy than some other states. And so in some sense, 
uh, it's not as negatively impacted by the pandemic, right? You can kind of keep on manufacturing uh, to a certain extent, as long as there's demand out there. So to the extent that we were less hard hit in that respect, you might say, well, we didn't get as much of a benefit, but we didn't in some sense need as much of the benefits from these activities. Now, there are other things that were hitting the economy. So for instance, the whole world economy went into a tailspin. So demand for the things that we might manufacture is going to be depressed. And so other states don't have as much of a manufacturing dependence, so they probably weren't as hard hit. I haven't looked at the, the data about sort of agriculture, uh, but the hit to our agriculture actually preceded the pandemic. So it's not clear to me that we had much of an additional hit there. So, you know, I'd, I'd say that it'd be hard to differentiate the impact of these measures on Wisconsin relative to other states. But it certainly, it certainly helped in terms of mitigating the negative impact. Absolutely. And then now, even though this is another huge question, I want to shift from talking about one multi-trillion dollar aid package to another nearly multi-trillion dollar aid package and talk about the American Rescue Act, the $1.9 trillion COVID-19 stimulus bill that just on Saturday passed through the Senate and is now about to return the House and will likely pass there and then be signed into law. I want to ask you just kind of what's your opinion on the provisions and inclusions in this bill? Could you maybe run us down with the uh, what you consider the good, the bad, and the ugly of this legislation? Well, yeah, it's hard to go through all the components uh, in a comprehensive way. But the, I mean, there are several issues. The first is the size, and then there's the issues about the composition. So let me address the issue about the composition. A good chunk of it, large chunks of it, have to do directly with the issues at hand. So more PPP, that is Paycheck Protection Program. So it's keeping the firms in business until such time as we're in a state where you can really open up the economy. Well, you know, if you think about it, if June, for instance, is the time you get the economy in shape, sort of past the most of the pandemic so that people can undertake activities mostly normally, well, you still got about three months to go. And so you, you need those funds. Unemployment insurance extension is about to run out. So the enhancements to unemployment insurance, even at the lower levels than were originally conceived, that's a big plus. Plus the sort of the rebates are going to be these checks that are just cut out to households, irrespective of employment status. That's all going to help keep households afloat. And then you have some other measures that are in there that have to do with keeping the states and localities funded because you know states and localities have seen their tax revenues go down. At the same time, they've had bigger needs for some of the services they provide. And the difference between states and localities is typically they can't run deficits, but the federal government can. And in the previous recovery, so the recovery from the 2007 to 2009 recession, what happened is the states either cut taxes and cut spending, or taxes fell, tax revenues fell, and they kept spending in line with it. And that was exerting a contractionary effect on the whole US economy. And you want to avoid that this time around. And so one way of doing that is to put in an item where you're transferring funds from the federal government to the states. And so you don't have a replay of what happened in the years 2009 to 2012 or 13. Okay. So those are some big components. There are other components that people have pointed out aren't directly related to the COVID-19 pandemic. 
Okay, well, so that's a case where people are taking advantage of the, the crisis to implement things that they think should be in there, that should shore up the economy or indirectly help the economy recover. So I won't deal with those, but the main components make sense to a certain extent. And so here's the rub, it's the size of the stimulus, so what are the size of the spending package? It's 1.9 trillion, as you pointed out, and uh, 1.9 trillion, the question is, even if you're not aiming to stimulate the economy, will you overstimulate the economy to an extent that um, you, you can ask, well, what's the downside? The downside could be either interest rates rise or inflation rates rise or some combination of the two. And what would be bad about those things? Well, interest rates rising will, will choke off part of the economy. It'll slow down parts of the economy where it's interest sensitive, like housing. If inflation rises, well, inflation is not clearly a bad thing all the time, but if it's unexpected, then people get surprised that, you know, their assets are worth less in inflation-adjusted terms than they thought they would be, or wages are eroded in purchasing power. So there are some possibilities of downsides, and I think that's where the worry is, that given we spent $4 trillion already, and we're on the way, it seems like, to a recovery, is 1.9 trillion too much? And is it too much depends critically upon, you know, if I give a dollar to a household that's um, the breadwinners are unemployed, you know, how much will they spend? Well, we don't know for sure because these are strange times. And already there's been a lot of money or income that's been, resources have been transferred and people have saved them. And so the question is, once the pandemic is over, do we all go and party up? Do we go on vacations? Do we go to restaurants to excess and so forth? So we spend a lot of what's being transferred out, or do we spend not that much? If we don't spend that much out of each dollar that's that's doled out, then you know we may be just on track to a quick recovery by the end of this year and beginning of next year. If we you know spend a lot of it, then we'll overshoot and maybe we'll get some inflation or higher interest rates. So this is where um, Janet Yellen, who's the Treasury Secretary, and others have said, as well as Jay Powell, the head of the Federal Reserve, have said, well, too little or too much. What, what happens if we spend too much? We get a little inflation, and we've been trying to get inflation to be higher. If it's too little, we'll have lots of people suffering and you know, suffering unnecessarily. And so it seems like the worst outcome would be to undershoot as opposed to overshoot. That's the current state of the debate, I think, between reasonable policy analysts is, is the amount of spending too much such that we'll overshoot. And is the overshooting going to lead to something that's quite bad? One kind of question that I have directly on that, or I know maybe one criticism of stimulus following the 2008 financial crisis is it wasn't big enough. Is there like an apprehension to making it too big because of possible institutional memory of that? Yes. I, I mean, so if your question is, you know, are we trying to make sure we don't replicate 2009? And I think the answer is quite definitely yes. That, that, that's quite clear. And, and uh, I'll speak as somebody who thought, well, the $787 billion package that was considered enormous at the time, I thought, well, if it turns out we need more, we can just go back to the Congress and get another package. And um, that's the way of thinking in uh, calibrated terms where, well, you actually undertake measures that you need to when the needs come up. And the, the surprise was that 
in the years that the Republicans took back control of the Senate, you, you couldn't get new measures passed, not new big spending measures. And so on top of the fact that the states individually were cutting or restraining spending, you had no additional packages when clearly packages were needed, meant that you had an extremely slow recovery. That's why you heard all this talk back then about the slowest recovery ever. Well, in many ways, it was a slow recovery because exactly we were constrained from doing some of the measures we would have wanted to have done. And so I think some of the same calculus is going on here. Will we get an opportunity to pass another package after this two-year period where you know House and Senate and the White House are in the hands of a single party? Once we get into one of the houses possibly being in the Republican hands, so you have split government, will there ever be another package passed? So if you are afraid that you'll you'll have that situation come up, you might want to make sure you've got the spending teed up now and into play. And then in 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 a way, the, the fact that people have socked away a lot of the transfers from the past as savings is a good thing because then they can keep on drawing on that as time goes on. Instead of, you know, maybe they won't spend it all at once in the next few years as things cool off they'll rely upon those excess savings. So to me, it kind of sounds like you're saying that the United States actually handled the economic fallout from COVID-19 really, really well. And that while, say, unemployment rates and everything are looking abysmal right now, in a decade or so, we'll maybe turn back and realize that we handled the economic fallout of COVID-19 in the right fashion. But then my question is, why weren't we able to handle the health dimension of COVID-19 in the same way? Like, why weren't we able to distribute tests and personal protective equipment with the same fervor that we were able to pass bills propping up the economy? Well, you know, I, I think it has to do with, uh, it's an excellent question. I mean, I'm not sure I have the answer, but I think it has to do with the sort of political business cycle. And we know that parties that are in power um, will tend to boost spending towards the end of their term in order to stay in power. And so um, in this particular case, Republicans wanted to maintain control of the White House. And one way they could do that is by ginning up the economy, keeping it growing as fast as possible. And that means what? Well, that means you cut taxes and or you increase government spending or both. And so you had a weird alignment of interests. I think the Democrats who believed in sort of mitigating harm to families, working families of all sorts, and you know, wanted a support package of various types, they wanted to keep the economy going on public policy, sort of best public policy grounds. But Republicans also wanted to keep the economy going as fast as possible. So there, there's a confluence of interest to pass spending bills, of which 1.9 trillion, I mean, I was amazed when it passed. But you know, if you think about the political logic, it's not so amazing. Now, on the other hand, you know, the public health measures, there's no clear confluence of interest there. In in fact, you might say, well, if I think that I can somehow just open up the economy, and I really don't think that the worst consequences are going to occur in terms of infection rates and fatalities. And maybe if the worst occurs, you know, sounds a little cold-hearted, but, you know, if it worst occurs after the election, it's a good thing to open up the economy. Uh, you would, of course, for that to work, you'd have to time it just right so that the maximal surge is after the election. Well, in point of fact, you know, fatality rates and infection rates 
did what? They sort of peaked in December, January, uh, if I recall correctly. So um, that explains to me the political calculus. I mean, it's a combination of completely thinking about the timing of when these measures will have an impact on the economy. You know, and the economy did slow down in December uh, after the election. And it's also belief system. I mean, so I, I think there is a case where people's views of what is going to happen, given particular policy measures, differs between the two groups. So I'd say, you know, in typical sort of political science, economic rational actor model, people have the same sort of assessment of probabilities and how the world works. But maybe in the real world, um, that's not true. And it's actually interesting that you see in polls that the disjuncture between economic outlooks is very different uh, depending upon which party you're affiliated with. And there's these big discrete changes when parties change power as well. So there is clearly in the data some distinction between worldviews that might be part of the explanation. Transitioning from there, of course, fiscal policy is a critical component of any economy, but there's always so many factors that are influencing and putting pressure on economies of states in one way or another. And of course, right now, one aspect that I think a lot of people are looking at as influencing the economy is the development and distribution of the COVID-19 vaccine. So I want to ask, how important is the development of vaccines for the U.S. economy and specifically in the realm of, say, international trade and global finance? Oh, okay. Well, you know, I mean, I could speak to the fact that, first of all, it's, it's clear that all the forecasts of where the economy is going depends upon our assessment of this race between vaccination rates and the development of these new variants. And so when you hear these estimates or projections of growth rates for the U.S. economy and the world economy, it's really highly sensitive to what people are guessing about the future in, in, with regard to this question. So critical to how we can get to sustained growth is this issue of vaccination rates versus development of new variants and how effective the vaccines are against them. So the whole world economy's growth rate depends since critically on that question. Now, in terms of trade in vaccines, there are these measures where people, particular countries, have restricted the, the exports of these vaccines, uh, even if they've been contracted for. So I think Italy stopped a batch of vaccines from leaving the country. So, you know, that could be a problem because, you know, if one country starts doing it and other countries join in, then you'll end up possibly with a bunch of countries, some with more, some with less, but you've essentially prevented the free flow of, of vaccines, and that probably would inhibit vaccination rates in general. So that's that's kind of a concern that I have. And so we probably don't want to have protectionist pressures rising up in terms of vaccination rates. Now, more generally than that, it's hard for me to say, except the following. If we have this big differential in vaccination rates between the, the higher income countries and the lower income countries, as has been discussed a lot lately, then to a certain extent, we can never have a complete recovery because that means that the countries with the lower vaccination rate are going to be constantly going through this stop and go surge and control, surge and control, uh, retrenchment and opening up and closing down the economy. So that's a, that's a problem that impacts us because obviously their imports are our exports. And so that's important. 
from just strictly economic perspective. But it's also the case that what little I know about what I've heard in terms of the issues of the mutations and the new variants is, well, as long as you have an incredibly large reservoir of individuals who are not vaccinated, then you're going to have lots of infections. And with lots of infections, you'll have a much, you'll have more mutations, just probabilistically speaking. And you can't lock off your borders. You can't close your borders. You can try, but you're, you're not going to be completely effective unless you're maybe New Zealand. Okay. But the rest of us aren't. So that's the sense in which the international economy and the progress in vaccination rates rebounds against, uh, to us again, you know, so we can't act as if we're an island to say, well, we vaccinate everybody here, we'll be okay. That's a really interesting point. And so that's, you know, one problem you've identified that we're going to have to be mm-hmm. facing in the in the coming months. And we've talked about inflation, uh, especially concerning the new stimulus package. But are there any other like major concerns that you see us having to deal with economically in the coming months, especially now that we're entering yeah, this new period where there are going to be there's going to be you know, more people participating in the economy as people are getting vaccinated. So yeah, what are some of the other yeah. concerns? Well, I, I mean, you know, I think the, there you can point to several key issues. Um, one is debt, uh, accumulation debt by the U.S. government. So if we spend, you know, we spend $4 trillion and then there's another $2 trillion and then possibly there's infrastructure uh, package later on, which could be another multi-trillion dollar package, then you know you've accumulated like six trillion dollars worth of debt, and of course you know because um, economic activity was down, tax revenue was down, so there's even more of a debt accumulation. So we're heading quickly towards a lot of government debt, and the Congressional Budget Office scored something like you know in in uh, twenty years or so. It's I can't remember the exact date, but we're going to hit two hundred percent debt to GDP. Okay, well two points. One is that's a projection and it depends upon what the interest rates are. And what are the interest rates now? Well, essentially the interest rate adjusting for inflation is negative. That is, you know, in a way in inflation adjusted terms, the government's not paying anything to borrow. Uh, It's paying a negative interest rate. Now, we don't know how long that's going to last. And so that's the big question. How long will we pop up to some positive real interest rate? And so the projections are a big increase in debt to GDP. But in reality, you know, we don't know. If in fact interest rates remain close to where they are now, it's almost a free lunch for borrowing. Okay. So then you have to you have to weigh the costs, the benefits, the probabilities. If I don't spend a trillion now, how many firms will go out of business? How many people will drop out of labor force permanently? How much will that reduce the natural rate of output in the future against this cost in terms of additional debt that the U.S. government's accumulated. So that's one one issue. I think the other issue is that the economy, even when we return to, you know, everybody or most everybody is vaccinated. So let's say we have something close to herd immunity and you can kind of return close to normal operations in the economy. Well, it's not clear to me that all the sectors will return in the same way. So for instance, will we have as many workers in central business districts in Manhattan, for instance, than there was before the pandemic? 
And you might say, okay, well, maybe they'll telework from home. What's the big implication that? Well, then people aren't traveling into town. They don't happen to be in town to do the auxiliary things like eating meals, meeting people, going to shows, and so forth. So I wonder about the distribution of, of activities. Some sectors probably will never recover fully, or uh, they'll, they may recover, but in different places. Well, that means people have to move around to where the new jobs are in terms of sectors and in terms of geographic location. So that's an adjustment that's going to, I assume, happen. I may be wrong. Maybe we bounce back to something very similar to what we had pre-pandemic in terms of the activities and where the activities are located, but, but that's unclear. And then I do worry if we have sort of a slow recovery. Okay, so let's say in the pandemic is one where the vaccines sort of work partly, but we keep on getting new variants. So we have these searches here and there. Well, the, the question I have is if we don't get back to full employment, then are there going to be desires to do something else besides spend more than um, on behalf of the government? Are there going to be other pressures? And the other pressures would be to take protections measures. So like putting more tariffs on not just things like vaccines. You wouldn't want to put tariffs on vaccines, but let's say put tariffs on imports of other things so that let's say um, protective equipment is produced here rather than abroad. And then you could expand it. Maybe we want to put more tariffs on cars or uh, more tariffs on computers. Well, if we all do that, then we'll be in a worse situation. Everything will cost more, uh, but nobody will be able to gain a lot of benefit in terms of being able to get jobs here versus somewhere else. And so that protectionist impetus, which rises whenever the economy goes down, is something I think you have to worry about once, let's say, the pandemic is mostly under control. If you don't get employment pulled up to close to normal levels, then there's going to be a desire to do something else, and particularly maybe something else that doesn't cost the government money. And uh, if those things ever do happen, if uh, unfortunately, hopefully they don't, but if they do, we would love to have you back at some point to talk about them. Um, but for now, um, another thing that we'd like to ask you about is that you've been a visiting scholar at the International Monetary Fund, the Congressional Budget Office, the Federal Reserve Board, the European Central Bank, and the Banque des Français, pardon my French. Um, and we'd be really, really interested in hearing some of your insights and perspectives on these institutions, because a lot of these are staples of our interconnected and increasingly globalist world. I'm thinking especially of the International Monetary Fund and the European Central Bank and the United States's relationship with these international organizations has been really a major theme of United States politics pretty much since around and a little bit at, and, and continuing since the 2016 election. So I'd like to ask you what your thoughts are on the differences between, say, the Trump presidency and the new Biden administration and how they're posturing themselves uh, either against or with these international institutions and how important you think that they're going to be in a post-pandemic global economy? Okay, well, excellent question. I mean, in some senses, it would have been better for you to have somebody who had been uh, intimately involved with the World Trade Organization, 
which is where the biggest disjuncture occurred between the previous administration and the Trump administration. I mean, there, essentially, the Trump administration had no time at all for the World Trade Organization in terms of it being an arbiter about who's under, undertaking unfair trade practices. Um, so in, in point of fact, any of the views that anybody who worked at WTO had probably wouldn't have flown far with, with individuals in the Trump administration. That just wasn't their worldview. On the other institution, so let's say the International Monetary Fund, in that case, I think to the extent that the Trump administration wasn't a big believer in multilateral coordination, then you know, the IMF was mostly left to its own devices. And the IMF is self-financing, essentially. I mean, it's got a subscription that gives it a capital base, which it can operate off of. So as long as not too many countries are borrowing from it, you know, it can continue operating without uh, having additional funds come in from the U.S. Um, it has to have the approval of the U.S. in the sense that for, for big measures in, in terms of, let's say, making a big loan. But, you know, from, from day-to-day operations, coordinating, monitoring the world economy, it can largely do what it likes. And so then you can say, well, what is the role of the IMF? Well, the role of IMF is to lend um, to countries that run into balanced payments problems. And so uh, in general, as long as the U.S. didn't have an issue with a country that was borrowing from the IMF, then it, it left the IMF to its own devices. It wasn't particularly interested. If there'd been a country that wanted a loan from the IMF that was on the U.S. no-go list, like let's say Venezuela, then certainly the U.S. would have would have um, jumped in. So I don't think there was a big impact there, except you know if you're working at the IMF and your whole raison d'être is to be there coordinating policies, giving advice to countries about how best to conduct their policies. Well, then you you would be pretty depressed in the sense that no you know nobody in the U.S. is is listening to you or is actively opposing what you're saying. <clears throat> so in that sense, the IMF is now. I'd say in a better position because the U.S. is now engaged in an active way with the IMF and and the other multilateral development institutions like the World Bank. So I can say that much about the IMF. And then you know there are institutions that are not international, like the Federal Reserve. I mean, in in some sense, there's another big change because previously uh, the Trump administration was sort of pushing against some of the policy of the Fed, particularly when the Fed was raising interest rates. Mr. Trump was particularly vocal relative to other presidents who have had a very hands-off way of uh, treating the Fed and Fed policy. Uh, he spoke much more often. But I think the, the thing that was more most problematic was that as time went on, he uh, tried to appoint to the Federal Reserve people who were less and less sort of mainstream and sort of acceptable to the sort of Republican or financial interests and people who were a little bit more iconoclastic. So uh, uh, Judith Shelton, for instance, would have been somebody who was in favor of the gold standard uh, before she was against the gold standard. Well, she, she would have been somebody who would have been viewed as somebody not defending the autonomy of the Federal Reserve. And that would have been something highly disruptive. Uh, what's been sort of the bulwark of monetary policy in America for years and years and years, decades, has been the idea that the Federal Reserve is somewhat insulated from political pressures. And by appointing people who would have been more pliant, that would have been an assault um, and would have reduced the credibility of the Fed. That is, um, That would have been really problematic, I think, for financial stability. And I think for now that 
that worry is gone. Fair enough. As we are wrapping up today, Mm -hmm. we like to ask this to our recent people we've had on the pod. Is there something today that we uh, did not ask you about, but you think is important for our listeners to know? Well, there's so many things, but I I think you've touched upon the the main issues. We are at a consequential time, if if I I didn't didn't need to tell you that. But the the very fact is we have responded uh, with great alacrity and, and effectiveness at least in terms of macroeconomic policy, both fiscal and the monetary side to this crisis. And it's a crisis that was unprecedented in modern times. I mean, if you think back to the last pandemic of this magnitude, which is like the 1918-19 quote-unquote Spanish flu, you know, back then you would be hard-pressed to have found the impact of the Spanish flu on economic indicators, partly because we didn't have so many of them, Uh, But partly because that was a different economy, government wasn't so intimately involved, and services were a much smaller proportion of the economy. Manufacturing was much more important, manufacturing industry in general. And so what happened this time and what was the appropriate response, we were operating a lot more in the dark. I'd still say that even though we've successfully navigated so far a lot of the concerns, at least on the macroeconomic end, maybe not the, the public health end, we're still a little bit in the dark because we don't know we don't know how many firms will be still around by the time we get to quote unquote normal, how many people will have dropped out of the labor force, how many people will have fallen into poverty as a consequence of you know their incomes falling, given the fact that we couldn't direct all the funds to exactly the right people. We couldn't target as well as we might have wanted to target. And we couldn't have put what are called automatic stabilizers in to sort of kick in and and taper off the support when we didn't need so much support. Um, so we could have done things better. And so the question is, when we get to the close to normal, where will we be? And that's still an unknown. And then how to deal with that? What measures when we've gotten out of this pandemic stage? That's a big question. On top of the questions that we had unresolved before the pandemic, including inequality and income distribution issues, as well as labor force issues and automation and all those other things that were troubling us beforehand. So many questions, and it's a bummer that we only have around an hour to talk about them here. But on that note, the final thing that we want to ask you is that it's been a pretty long and at times pretty dark and stressful year in global politics. And the question that we've been asking all of our guests right now to end the show is, what's something that makes you hopeful right now? It can be from politics, it can be from you know current events, or even just your own personal professional life. Just what is a source of hope for you? Well, the one personal hope is that uh, we, we once again have in popular discourse, policy, we have a policy discourse. I mean, essentially for a good number of years, there wasn't really a discussion of what's a good policy, how would you... Uh, implement a good policy in either economics or public health. Really, a lot of things were sort of bumper bumper sticker slogans rather than thinking about policies. And so we've had a return to those sort of discussions on sort of both sides. You know, part of it was here, you know, is the stimulus package or recovery package too big, too small? Could it have been better targeted? How would you have better targeted? As opposed to no, yes, spending good or spending bad. Um, taxes bad or taxes good. It's much more back to normal in that regard. So one can only hope that 
the appeal to sort of facts and to data. And, you know, we had this term um, evidence-based uh, policymaking before the past four years. Now, will we return to that? I'm hopeful. Um, the question is, you know, will the politics follow that enables that to be more generally discussed amongst people, right? Not just amongst policy experts. So one step at a time. We've got to return to that right now, at least in the in the government, and certainly never disappeared completely in international fora. But we've got that in the government. Whether that can percolate more broadly to the society at large is another question. Although it is interesting, you, you look at the support for the current package, and you see, well, a lot of people support it, presumably because they see that there's some merit in many of the policies that are being proposed. Uh, in the American recovery or rescue plan. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor. Okay, well, thank you for having me on. For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger and Sam Beisman, produced by Amy Gangle and recorded remotely for now.